Good morning and happy holidays, everybody. Welcome into the final episode, Mining Stock Day for 2022. It's going to be a good one. We've got two long segments for you. In fact, <laughs> three guests that everybody should know. Uh, incredible guests, well-informed people that know the markets and resources better than almost anybody else we've had on the on the podcast over the past year. We have the koala, we have the shrub, and we also have our green chicken friend, Doomberg, all joining us on the podcast today. In our first segment, we will have a group conversation between myself, Shrub, and Koala uh, discussing an industrial revolution, if you will. What needs to give? What needs to be gained? And what did 2022 treat us in the resource investment game? So, long conversation there. Then we welcome in Doomberg, and we talk a little bit about rebranding. He knows a little bit of something about going behind the paywall. We talk about content creation in this field and also you know the trials and tribulations of sticking to your values and we also talk about a little bit of his foresight into 2023 things he's going to be looking for as they continue to publish that doomberg newsletter which i highly recommend special thank you to western copper and gold integra resources and arizona sonoran copper for your continued support of the podcast a little bit of a rebrand everybody if you didn't notice We are rebranding Clear Creek Digital to Clear Commodity Network. Not only will Mining Stock Daily fall underneath that, we're also launching The Power Current with Chris Berry, Going Nuclear with Justin Hewn and myself, and our friend Tony Greer also comes in with ClearCom to host The Oil Ground Up with Tony Greer. So we're going to hit a lot of commodities in 2023. I hope you all can hit that subscribe button as content comes out starting in January. Share, like, all that fun stuff. We created a wonderful community in the last couple of years with Mining Stock Dealer, but I want to expand and hit as much of the commodity sector as possible. So that's the big news out of the podcast and Clear <laughs> clear Commodity Network. Still having a hard time getting used to it. All right, everybody, let's jump into my conversation with Shrub and Koala first, and we'll talk with you at the end. Greetings, everybody. Welcome back into Mining Stock Daily and our long-form episode here as we wrap up the year 2022. This will be the last episode uh, of 2022, but may I dare say the first episode under the new Clear Commodity Network or ClearCom banner. Uh, It is a day full of guests of anonymity. Uh, I told you we were going to have a koala, a shrub, and a green chicken, but first... Let's start with the cuddly little koala and the ever so beautiful shrub. Gentlemen, thank you so much for taking the time out of your busy days to have a conversation with us. Great time to wrap up a wild year, Trevor. (laughs) Hey, Trevor. Great way to end the year and just start a year where no one knows anything about how it's going to start. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so actually, one of the reasons I wanted to get you two on together is because, well, along with Doomberg uh, in our in our second segment, is because out of all the episodes that we published throughout the year, uh, the three of you single-handedly had the best ratings 
out of all the episodes. So people really tuned in, and I think it just goes to show uh, the value of the ideas and uh, the experience that you can share with the Mining Stock Daily listeners. So, you know, why not get you back together to kind of wrap up this year? Uh, It has been a very interesting year. Uh, It turns out inflation wasn't transitory. Uh, It turns out that the Fed can hike rates and be hawkish, uh, and it's also it appears that the markets can respond as we currently speak. The S&P uh, has broken below that uh, 3,900 level that seemed to be of support for here the last couple months. Um, you know, let's get a general sense here. We'll talk big picture with each of you individually and then see if we can uh, kind of narrow down to specifics. Uh, Koala, you've had an interesting year. Uh, you know, you, you, you launched, well, I guess maybe you didn't launch, but you were very active in communicating the eucalyptus, eu- eucalyptus paradox. Sorry, it still doesn't roll off the tongue very well. Uh, but, you know, let, let's talk about the things that really kind of stick in your mind in the, in the investment and financial realms that, you know, we'll take forward into the new year. Look, I think uh, I got to give Shrub some credit here for helping uh, come up with such a concise way uh, to describe the paradox. Uh, as everyone's figured out by now with my propensity for threads, I am not a concise person who loves to hear my own voice. So chalk some arrogance and narcissism in there as well, but at least I'm self-aware. Look, I, I think this has been a very, a year of full surprises. I mean, if I think about the commodity space, what are the commodities that have done the best? Um, I'd call it the 21st century energy and the 20th century energy. And that would be um, lithium, which, oh my God, the monthly Pilbara auction is 3% down over last month. Everybody panic um, overnight, but still we're dealing with uh, incredible lithium prices and it's showing the realization of where are we going to get all these battery materials for this multi-decade transition uh, to electrification and decarbonization that is going to happen in the first world. Uh, And at the same time, um, we have the 20th century energy, which is uh, basically the return of coal, Um, where if you go back six years ago when Glencore was buying Rio Tinto's coal assets, um, everyone laughed and then they do the site visit, and I've posted this uh, slide a few times where they show that at LNG, this in Japan, in Asia, uh, this is the parity Newcastle price, and it never trade there because up until the last couple of years, we lived in a world of abundance uh, on the commodity side. We had this spike of CapEx a decade ago because uh, people overbuilt because they thought China was just going to hockey stick forever, and it turns out China plateaued last year. We had the miracle of shale which indulged us with cheap natural gas and cheap oil as the U.S. became a massive oil producer again. Uh, but then COVID hits, supply chains get messed up. Uh, the world de-global- is fragmenting instead of globalizing for the first time since the Cold War and the wall came down. And that is structurally inflationary. And at the same time, as I want to first point out, January 2022, Newcastle, Started with a two. It was like 220 when it settled. And then, Shrub, you'll have the exact date, but February 24th happened and everything changed. Uh, and it really kind of encapsulates the fracture uh, 
and the rise of an Iron Curtain again and trust in the world. And a saying I used to be told at university is people don't go to, with the exception of Stalin and Hitler, uh, people don't go to war with their trade partners. Um, and we're seeing less trade. We're seeing sanctions on exports from countries. But what we've seen then is energy is tight. And when's the last time we saw a tight energy market? Probably back in 08 when Aubrey McClendon looked like a genius because gas was 14 and shale really hadn't kicked into gear yet. Uh, and that's U.S. gas 14, which uh, right now gas in the seaboard market, Pacific and uh, TTF, 14 would sound lovely. Mm-hmm. Um, and so what we've seen now is the lack of investment in the last half decade has come home to roost. And we're no longer talking just about green energy and ESG and all the COP26 Glasgow stuff of 13 months ago. We're now talking about energy security. We're talking about mineral security. It's no longer taken for granted that there's a bunch of dupes that are going to dig holes in the ground and provide the world with cheap commodities. It's revenge of the miners. Yeah, I think that's, that was you know beautifully said. Um, Russia was a turning point, but let's just say it was maybe. Should we just say it was the accelerant? For people to realize, we hope, right? We hope it was the accelerant for people to realize that energy and commodities were mispriced. So we take a lot of things for granted. Um, For example, we take for granted that we have enough energy to mine for Bitcoin that no one really cares about. We We take for granted that we can go and spend, you know, billions to mine gold. I just said that to trigger you, Trevor, by the way. <laughs> but, but, you know, we, we take for granted electric escalators or heating our houses at 22 degrees, whereas in the 70s we were heating our houses at 19 degrees. So these things basically was a mispricing of commodities in some way. And also it was a mispricing of, um, of our relationship. So the fact that Germany... Uh, managed to have 50% of his energy coming from Russia was a massive strategic failing. Massive. And, I, you know, you know my theory that I've discussed in the last episode, but I'll mention it again. My view is that people got paid um, similarly to, uh, you know, the latest crypto shenanigans with FTX and the regulators. But different story. The, the, the thing is, a lot of things were mispriced. And I think the war um, showed people very quickly Um, that our supply chain was fragile, that our commodities were fragile. And suddenly, and it goes, suddenly, um, something quite interesting happened. So, you know, Ed Chancellor uh, of Marathon, he he said something once, that in the good times, you put a dollar in a company and you get $5 back in the stock price. So think about this for one sec. So, in 2021, we were putting a dollar in a SPAC and the stock price, you know, the, the sponsor was putting a dollar in a SPAC and the SPAC was going up $5. So the same thing happened with uh, streaming over the years, right? So Netflix was putting one and was getting five or uh, shale, an example we know better. You were getting one, but you were putting a dollar and the shale guys were burning, you know, creating $5 uh, value. But actually that dollar you were putting in, you were burning 50 cents, Right. 
So we spent the whole of 2021 misallocating capital to these places. And in the meantime, again, what Ed Chancellor says, this is what happens in the good times. In the good times, you put one and you get five. But in the bad times, someone else puts one and we buy a 10 cents down the line. <laughs> so think about 2020, 2021. We had all the crap and the SPACs and the cryptos where someone put one and sold it to someone at five. And, you know, we as, I mean, I'm a generalist, but, you know, coming into the commodity energy space in 2020, 2021, you were actually buying stuff at 10 cents when someone put one at the good times. So come the war and come the war and you suddenly realize, oh, crap, all that stuff I was paying $5 for is really worth 50 cents. So that's all the Ponzi stuff. And then all the stuff that... You know, it's trading at 10 cents that someone paid a dollar to make. Shit, this is where the value is. So you had this massive inflection in people's realization, which, by the way, took some people six months to figure out. So I think, so this is the realization of investors, and it took a while. Um, and, you know, I think it shows an opportunity for people that are a bit more uh, open-minded. It took a while for people to realize that, that people were mispriced. You know, the coal companies were making two times earnings for a few months uh, while doing buybacks. Um, you know, the energy companies, the rig companies, the offshore companies. Um, so that's where we are. So this is what the, the war has made a realization of um, what is a 10 cents on the dollar and what is useful. That's the step stage one. Now, stage two, and I think this is where it gets interesting about 2023, 20, 24. Stage two is that this, the war, created a massive inflationary event, in Europe at least, and in the U.S. It fueled inflation in the U.S. I mean, it kind of, you know, the fact that the U.S. printed $10 trillion may have also added a bit of fuel in the fire. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> a <the> little bit. <laughs> but, again, the whole point is, it's like a Minsky moment, you know, when you, you pile in. 10, bit, 10 trillion of stimulus and, you know, you need a spark to create inflation that everyone was begging to have inflation for 10 years and suddenly we have inflation and everyone panics because the event was against, was, was not in their control. So the inflationary event that comes on top um, makes the central banks, forces the central banks to tighten. And they keep tightening. They keep tightening, by the way, because... We're used to not believing the Fed because, let's be honest, the Fed has no credibility given what's happened in the last few years. So they have to over-tighten. And here we are in December, and Powell has to say for, I don't know, the fifth time in the last three months that you don't get it. Rates have to stay higher for longer. And this is where the market is completely mispriced still, that they always t still talk about the pivot and still don't understand that you know, this guy has to take, has to make sure inflation is over and he has to keep rates high for at least a year. Now, I think something does, on that though, Shrub, is for basically since March 27th, 2009, when QE was first announced by Bernanke, there was a very simple playbook that whenever there was weakness, because there was so much trauma from the GFC, monetary policy got looser, which means... You think, oh, that's great, like cheap money, buy value. No, the transfer was go as far out on the duration curve as you can. And mm -hmm. therefore, 
that's why we had, like, there are good SaaS companies, but I'll say ARC as the proxy for this. Oh, money's free? Let's talk about 2040, not 2014. And mm-hmm. so everyone's gotten conditioned to this. Fortunes, billionaires, tens of billions, $100 billion investment firms have been built on forsaking the stuff that the sectors that we talk about in commodities to focus on, I think, long-term, so long-term that all we're debating is the 2030 EPS number. Um, happens to be a car company that has uh, been built on that vision. And we've had a paradigm shift this year. And I think there was a day, it was like Monday, June 13th, I think. I might not have, I, I remember it was a Monday and around one o'clock, it goes around. Yeah, I know we all thought 50, but the Fed's going 75 in two days. And it was very much, pardon my French, well, you guys fucked around, didn't believe me? Now you're going to find out. And June was painful after that because everyone goes, wait, no, they're serious this time. Like, they're very serious. So 75, 75, and the Fed is regaining credibility. But we've had an entire paradigm shift. What worked for 14 years doesn't work anymore. So everyone's having to retrain themselves. And I'll give an example because Shrub and I were talking about Petrobras earlier today. Um, Even though I'm not an energy guy, but... I think about how Lula's coming back into power and how even going into the election, how many questions I got in the eucalyptus tree of koala, what about Vale under a Lula administration? I'm like, and I would glibly just go, yeah, what was the best performing emerging market stock when Lula (laughs) was in power? It was Vale. Sure, there was a commodity China super cycle at the same time, but people didn't remember that part. So then I'd have to say, okay, in all seriousness, guys, Vale imports dollars, exports commodities. So it employs people and it imports needed dollars to Brazil. Petrobras, while exporting oil and bringing in dollars, it also sells petrol to the voters in Brazil and is state controlled. So there's a slight nuance between what might happen with Petrobras and Vale. Of course, Lula's won and assuming a peaceful transition of power. Uh, you see Vale's done respectably well and people are starting to realize these things. But those knowledge of prior cycles in our industries have been completely eradicated because if you made your number by 2011 in the super cycle, after a couple of years, you just retired and went and sat on the beach and said, I'm not going to, uh, this isn't worth my time anymore. So you have to have a lot of knowledge has been lost in commodities. The same way in tech, the people who have the AUM, who have the influence they have to completely rewire their process for a new paradigm. And so I hate to say times have changed and it's different, but 5% Fed funds rate is a different world when you go, I'm sorry, your, your 3% uh, renewables project or your 4% yield that's not growing, that model has been shattered yeah. in a 5% risk-free rate. And, and also uh, just, to add, just, just, Trevor, just to add one thing, so basically... And also, it's, it's the obvious thing that at 5%, you have to kill a lot of other things. Because what the Fed is trying to do is trying to bring down inflation. And the service part is a very big part. So the wages are a big part. But also, they're trying to bring down energy. The ECB is actually trying to be, bring down energy prices in some way, which is kind of stupid. But, you know, they have to try. But <laughs> to get to 
you kill a lot of things on the way when all you're trying to do is just bring down commodity prices, which you should be addressing with supply chain, sorry, supply response, which they're not really doing, let's be honest, in Europe Mm -hmm. and the the UK. So the UK has introduced the windfall taxes, has introduced, uh, basically the North Sea was their saving grace, and they kind of killed the North Sea with their stupid windfall taxes because they made the windfall taxes when oil was at 90, and oil is at 70 now. So these companies that can't really work anymore with a 75% tax rate. Well, I think this is an important thing about the windfall taxes, um, is that you have in cyclical industries, you can have one year in 10, pay back the entire investment, three decent years. And if you're low on the cost curve and you have a tier one asset, you can make money every year. But you're going to have years of break even if you're not tier one. Um, and you're really waiting for that one year every 10 or two years every 10 that makes having to operate on razor thin margins, the other five years and the three mediocre years all worth it. If you take away that right tail of uh, profitability outcomes, you destroy the economics and the reasoning behind investing in anything but the best projects. And guess what? The best projects to find equally great projects Considering we've kind of walked the world, we've satellite imaged everything, they're kind of hard to find. You don't have an Escondida at surface uh, in the Andes that hasn't been discovered before. It's probably blind and going to be discovered by uh, Robert Friedland's typhoon in Utah or Arizona at this point. And I segue to that because the windfall tax, politicians in the West are reverting to populism. And it's kind of like one of the issues as I've thought a lot about Oya Tolgoy recently with the TRQ Rio Tinto deal to close. The issue there was that was a, besides some operational and geological issues, is the government of Mongolia changed over every like three or four years. May have been two years. But point is, you had to deal with an election so short where things rolled mm-hmm. over, people had to get reelected. Politicians in the West now are caring about, do I get reelected? Do I stay in power? Not how do I make policy that aligns with the capital cycle that capital needs to make these investments, to improve society? And if I have to fall on my sword for doing something that's unpopular but right, history will judge me favorably and, I, and my legacy will reflect that. And to me, that's just 90% windfall tax on renewables in Europe. Great. Who can, with a straight face, put up another windmill in the EU with that policy. Who? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Uh, see, I don't even need to be here. I don't need a host. I could have just opened it up to you guys. So let me let me jump in here because I had a number of questions I, that we could kind of expand a little bit. But I do want to talk about really the, this CapEx cycle. And one of the most interesting things I read was from Russell Napier, and I've mentioned it numerous times here on the podcast about his expectations for a CapEx boom to really increase nominal GDP and uh, continue to inflate debts away in in, in many countries, not just ours, in, in the U.S. But I want to talk about that in regards to the end of the cycle and also this inflationary cycle. And I keep thinking about, listen, on the cover right now, all I hear is we've seen peak inflation. We've seen peak inflation. It's it, it's coming down. But if you go back to the last inflationary cycle in the U.S. throughout the late 60s, 70s, 
there was a trough there where inflation did come down, but then sped up and excelled real rapidly. And that's where we got above that, you know, 12, 14, 15% inflation. That was a scary time. And so I want to think about it's that curve, that inflationary curve, and what it means for CapEx. If energy and mining projects are to become viable to get built, and let's say we replicate that inflationary curve this go-around, just as that we saw in the 70s, there's going to be a short window in there to get it done. Because if that inflation picks up once again in year, two, three, two years, three years, and it's anything that we saw in 2022, nobody's going to be financing new projects because the risk of expensive capital is out there. So will there be a window to get some of these projects done, to get them financed with either debt or equity or combination of the both? And how narrow will that window be? I will go first and say, I think this is going to take a decade plus because it's not just energy is expensive and materials are expensive and permitting is taking longer everywhere except for the rare few jurisdictions that have a defined mining culture and respect the industry. It's also a talent issue. Like uh, while you were talking, Trevor, I pulled up uh, just, there's been a declining number of mining engineers graduating every year, whether it's in Canada, Australia. I just pulled up an article from August 2021 talking about a fourth-year mining engineer at the Calgary campus, and he's one of only 25 engineering students, and he's he took a 110,000-year job working eight on, six off for gold fields. Like, there's just not talent coming into the industry. And that's not just a I'm the only idiot who spent the first decade plus of my career in a commodities bear market instead of software on the finance and investing side. It's actually the people who create the value who don't just sound good and have the visions in their head of the strategy. Um, so it's a people thing, not just at the beginning stages, but how many people have built a $5 billion three-year build of a major copper mine in the high Andes. Well, who's left in the industry? Guy who did QB2? Guy who did Calaveco? Had some guy who did Las Bombas, maybe if he's still around. Uh, but the truth is, when everyone decides they want to, they have the license to, to build, you're not going to have the A roster. You're not going to have a full all-star team on every capacity to delegate. And the companies are still very aware of that. So it's all long cycle here. It's not just where energy is or where materials are. It's how are we going to get the talent restocked? And then to say Ivan Glazenberg's line that the cupboard is dry, where are the projects that people are going to want to build? And if the majors don't find them, the majors are going to have to buy them. And then they're going to have to explain in their capital allocation framework why they're paying what they're paying. And then they actually to deliver on the build. There's a lot of moving parts here that have to all come together at the same time. Same way if you were building a multi-billion dollar industrial complex or mine. And it's not going to be a case of, oh, we can get this all sorted out in the next year. I think it's a case of it's going to take five to ten years to get everything humming along 
where we can have a CapEx boom. Not that we, we know we have to have it. But to have the CapEx boom happen and have the capacity to deliver it. I mean, these are long cycles, commodities, because it takes a long time to get things to a point where they get FID and then built. Shrubby, got yeah. anything to add on to that? So the way I think about it is absolutely spot on. Um, the way I think about it as well is I think of the climate versus weather uh, issue. So the climate is a long-term trend. The weather is a short-term trend. So the weather is you look out of your window and, you know, there's rain. So right now I look out of my window and there's rain. And this is the current uh, microeconomic environment. So when, when, the, when it's raining outside, you don't want to go out and play. You don't want to go out and build a sandcastle. So this is what's happening now, right? You have a weakening macroeconomic environment. So people are discouraged from investing. But the long-term trend tells me that it's going to be sunny and we're going to have global warming. So this is the commodity cycle. And these cycles, they last 10, 15 years. The problem is that within a 10, 15, you know, it takes 10, 15 years because actually it takes 10 years to build a copper mine, 10 years to build an offshore farm, Yabida, and God knows how long it takes to build a lithium mine. So the problem is that right now, if you have bizarrely a weak microeconomic environment actually discourages <laughs> investment. And this is where we are. That's why you have the eucalyptus paradox in some ways reinforced by the fact that you have you know, short, short, short-term players dominating the market on one hand. And on the other hand, you have policymakers who are also short-term oriented. So, for example, you know, the UK with the windfall tax, that's a short-minded, that's a short-minded, short-termist view because they're not encouraging supply. Or, you know, the Europeans, they scream for more lithium supply. They were about to build one, one lithium mine in Serbia and they blocked it. So they don't have any lithium mines in Europe, yet the, you know, the major car manufacturers are all based in Germany. So... It's all these issues that actually require policy response or require a bit, a bit more, more stable long-term capital, which is not there. And this is why we have supply shocks. Um, I mean, I, was, uh, I shared the, today the capex uh, that was spent in the oil and gas industry and the, and the copper industry in the last few years that, uh, that was in the Goldman's report uh, today. So look, the oil and gas industry... At the peak, they spent $600 billion in 2015. Now they're spending 150 even with the oil prices spiking. So this year, they didn't spend that much. They spent like 150 Or the copper industry, they were spending $11 billion in 2015. And this year, they spent five. I mean, $11 billion is like, it's a, it was a SPAC in 2011. Right? In 2021, it was just a SPAC. So we're talking about, oh, and let me give you the other, the other data point was, you know, Facebook they spend $100 billion in, uh, uh, in costs a year, which is about two times, <laughs> two times the capex of uh, the mine, all the mining majors. So basically, <laughs> you have this situation where you know, the, the, the company is allocating money for a company that uh, the, the market is allocating money to all these spaces, but they, they're not allocating to something that has a long, uh, long lead for many, many reasons. Sometimes they just don't want to get their hands dirty. But the resulting impact is the important one. And the resulting impact is, although I look outside my window and it's raining, if I don't do something about it today, man, in 10 years' time, 
it's going to be a real shit show. And what I'm seeing here is a supply shock that's coming, pretty much. And I think one of, and I think one of the interesting things that to think about here is one of the reasons is they don't want to go upstream. And let's just use the fact that there was that FT article that Tesla and Glencore flirted with each other a little bit that Elon denied at the Baron conference. It's like, okay, well, they're thinking bigger picture and guy just spent $44 billion, take off $13 billion of debt, probably $20 billion of his own money at least uh, on a social media platform. And the irony, since Shrub brought up Meta, is uh, they all want to get, if we get very Meta, um, great, well, maybe he's going to buy into volley-based metals and then General Motors gets the offtake from the nickel sulfate plant. Now, shot in the dark here, Tesla's not going to buy into volley-based metals if General Motors is getting the offtake agreement. Uh, but no one actually wants to sit there and be like, no, we're going to be like Henry Ford and go have the rubber plantations because we need the tires. We're going to build the iron ore mines in Minnesota because they're worried it's going to impact their multiples. The same way everyone in lithium looks at the Albemarle multiple and says, I want that specialty chemical multiple. I want to build a hydroxide facility. Do I want to build a hard rock mine or a brine? No, 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 no. I just want to be in the chemicals. And it's like, you know, we're kind of getting to this little Chinese steel world where you have a blast furnace, but you don't have the iron ore. And even if the iron ore guys trade at a low multiple, they're going to create a lot of value. And the true interesting thing, if we think about what's really going to get meta about this is... In a world where the miners trade at three to four times EBITDA and 20% plus free cash flow yields unlevered, because God only knows we have debt if we have a downturn, um, and no half the world can't invest in these companies because of ESG, the companies are the marginal buyer. And think about how we've heard over the last decade, I want bespoke, high ROIC investment opportunities for retained earnings to be deployed to create value, to capture the TAM. 20% free cash flow yields, buying back your stock with long life assets. The miners have the bespoke high ROIC TAM opportunities, blah, 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 catchword, catchword from the 2010s. Now it's a complete reverse, but everyone has to get rewired and it's only been nine months and people are stubborn because they want to buy the dip because for 10 years, buying the dip was the plan. And it worked. That's and it worked. It worked. Okay, so here's here's where we're gonna head to next because uh I'm guilty of reading some Victor Schwetz here lately and the rupture. And so I want to get a sense of uh you know changing cycle and throughout history we've seen uh a couple industrial revolutions, and on the back of those industrial revolutions, we have changed the way we produce and consume energy, the way we produce and more efficient transportation. Um, so, you know, I don't want to go through a deep history lesson here, but I want to talk about timing of a new cycle with a, a new age of industrial revolution with an information age. And, I know it's early. You mentioned nine months. I mean, but the world has changed so fast in the last nine months here, guys. But it honestly seems like there is a move in energy to really redefine not only how we produce, but how we consume energy. And there's going to be a lot of people out there that listen to this show that realize that in order to get to wherever that next, uh, that next energy revolution is, whether it be green, for lack of a better word, we're going to have to consume a lot of oil and gas to get there. 
But the what is the expectations here? Do we have a runway here, a 10-year runway, to really launch into what could be the next industrial revolution in energy and transportation? I feel like it's kind of percolating, but there's a lot of naysayers out there, but there's a lot of you know people really pushing this as well, including many politicians. It's going to be a volatile journey, but if you're an investor in commodities and cyclicals, as I've said before, in a non-concise way, volatility is your ally if you're invested in quality. So it's not going to be a straight line. But look, everyone, the naysayers will say, no, it's not about climate change. This is all bullshit. Hydrogen is, I'm skeptical at hydrogen, but let's use an example. It's not as dense energy. We've never gone from a dense energy to a less dense energy. But let's set aside those bigger polarizing points and just say what a really smart person once said to me is set aside the climate change point, Koala. The Chinese want a better quality of life every year. They want a healthy people and they want clean air and a better standard of living. And the clean air thing is what stood out to me. If you kind of distill it down to elementary school, primary school principles, shrub, I think, uh, your boy would appreciate, would understand this if we were walking through this uh, while getting ready for the Grand Prix. If you say, listen, we take gasoline cars out of major cities and you have EVs, that will create less pollution and cleaner air in major urban cities. And urban cities, because you can have shared services and a denser concentration of people, you can have more economic activity, you can have more productivity. That's why urbanization happens as countries develop. If we take it down to base principles, this is happening, but we don't have the capacity to do it quickly. That's why old energy is a great barbell with new energy. These things are going to take time. I do think it's, it's, it's not a 10-year story. It's We'll probably still be burning coal till 2070. I think the India net zero 2070 is a little more realistic than the Western world's net zero 2050. But you got to set you got to set crazy goals to get things changing. So it's going to be volatile, but that's why I'm an investor. I'm not a trader, and I think it's an important message to everyone out there. If you're not a portfolio manager at Millennium or Bali Asney, don't try to trade like one. Sit back, enjoy the world around you, enjoy your family, enjoy your hobbies, enjoy your friends. Do research. Don't stare at the screen, and just think about. What do I think is going to happen over the next three, five, ten years? And allocate accordingly. But there's more to life than staring at the green and the red like it's a slot machine. I feel like he's talking to me now. <laughs> I was put my head down in shame. <laughs> no, that's 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 well said. Uh, look, the, the the one thing I mean, there's one area that. Uh, the koala knows very well is it's lithium among, amongst many other things. But to your question, Trevor, I mean, all the projections about EV penetration and, you know, the bull case was 20% in 2025 koala or something. I can't remember what the bull case was, like 20% of cars or whatever. And then you look at China and 30% of new car sales is EVs. And everyone I speak to, okay, let's say we're like, middle class and above, they are considering an EV. So, you know, we were optimistic 
about uh, you know 20% penetration in 2025 or whatever. And now it's actually just really, really happening. Uh, and you can see it, okay, it starts with the centers like, uh, you, you know, you see it in metropolitan areas where it's easier to charge. But, you know, the electrification of the fleet, it's, it's happening. And I think it's happening faster. I think it's happening faster than people assume. Which is, again, brings us back to the lithium side. You know, prices are up crazy amounts in the last few, in the last couple of years, but, you know, it's, it's a demand side. <laughs> and the fact that it takes 10 years to build a mine. So if you want to get your bloody cars on the street, well, you got to build a few more mines. <laughs> so this is the simplest yeah. example that the average person listening to this podcast should be using because it's very tangible. It's in your face. And even though it's in, it's in your face, I bet you that not many people got it right in the last couple of years. And it's in your face. Check how many people are. I mean, e- even by looking at the share price of Tesla, you should have figured out that something is going on. Even if you were short, by the way. <laughs> but different story. <laughs> so, so that's the lithium example. On a bigger picture, I think the U.S. has a very big problem in its infrastructure. So... You know, the fact that you go to JFK and uh, Newark and they look like uh, emerging markets, right? I mean, it's kind of embarrassing. So the U.S. does have a big problem with its infrastructure and they should invest. Now, if they do it, I don't know. But, you know, the Inflation Reduction Act and everything else <laughs> should, have, should have helped the situation. So that's proper CapEx. And just anecdotally on the CapEx side, because um, I was looking at, a, of all things, a wind power company. And they were saying that 2023, they're not going to have much of a pipeline because the funds from the uh, Inflation Reduction Act, are the projects are going to be planned for in 23. So the real money hits them in 24. So I reckon mm-hmm. you're going to see like a more quiet 23 and people might get a bit like disappointed, but the real money kicks in in 2024. Um, you guys know the US better than I do, but... That's when, you know, and even like simple projects take time, but the money, that's when it gets in. Um, so I'm kind of optimistic on the industrial side. I'll tell you where I'm not that optimistic. Where I'm not optimistic is we can have a, you know, industrialization revolution with chain supply chains, building new chip factors and everything. But to have a proper, proper bull market in, in, in commodities... Um, you also need the consumer to be good, to be in a good place. And I'm, kind, I'm of the view that the Fed and the central banks are going to stay tight for the next 12 months. Uh, so we're, I don't think we're going to have a, that good a commodity market for the next 12 months mm-hmm. on the consumer side, the consumer demand side. And also China... China, like, I mean, let, let's be clear. I mean, China is, uh, what is it, like uh, half of their commodity demand. It's half of the commodity demand in the world and half of that goes into construction. So let's say 25% of the world's commodities go to construction, if not more. That doesn't look great. So right. I, I, I would be selective. Um, for I, I'd be careful of saying commodity super, super cycle as an all-encompassing commodity cycle. And just be a bit more selective where we can still see like, you know, very strong pockets and some pockets that are going to be like, eh, eh. which by the way, it's going to seed the seeds for the next bull cycle in those specific commodities because that's what happens. Yeah. I think the one thing I would, the one thing I would add on that that I think is interesting because uh, 
uh, the koala has been Mr. Vale for so long. And the, I was mm-hmm. talking about this over tea uh, yesterday. Uh, the Chinese property data has been absolutely horrendous uh, this year. Um, and you guys can see me, the viewers cannot, but um, let's just be honest here. The Ch- And even from my accent, the Chinese are not going to be honest with me and I don't speak Mandarin. Uh, and let's see if the stats are true or not. Mm-hmm. But I would just point out, basically, in the ter- most worst property market tape since 2015, iron ore basically broke 100 a couple months ago, hung out in the 90s, maybe trade with an eight handle for a day or two or a week. And it's back over 100. But the world still wants to believe that we're going back to 70. Um, so I think uh, Shrubs brought up a great point. Like, next year might not be the turbocharger year. I mean, energy's still high. Uh, we got to work through m- tight money. But in a world when, but this is where the equities, if they can control their cost lines, and you're seeing the guidance, they're all reflecting higher energy prices, and whether that's diesel and so on, and consumables. Um you can still sit there and say, okay, this year isn't when I make the big money, but I can still make decent returns. And if the consumer's not there, well, the consumer's a huge part of the broader market. So would I rather own these industries over the broad S&P next year? Yeah, probably. And if the consumer's good, then commodity demand's good, and we have a nice little story there too. I've got three minutes left. So my last question, and I've been wanting to ask both of you this because I know koala, you don't really care about gold and shrub. I'm pretty sure you're short gold. <laughs> so, but I want to ask, generally speaking, 2023, does gold find a better foundation in generalist portfolios next year? Quick answers. Me, No. Uh, I actually think I, I, I owned gold in 2008 and nine. Um, I know that gold looks okay, but I'm of the view that the Fed and everyone else is going to stay tight for the 12 months. Um, I actually wouldn't be short outright, but I have puts on gold, um, which I think are just a good asymmetric bet. I think I'm going to make 10 times the money if it works, and I'll just lose the premium if it doesn't. That's the only way to play gold for me. I would never short gold, gold outright. It's a 5,000-year-old bubble. So, you know, that, that's, that's my view. Look, I, I think as the economy bottoms out and risk appetite starts to return, uh, gold, whether it was 9 to 11, uh, 2009, 2011, to be clear, and in the four or five months off the COVID bottom in March 2020, um, gold does tend to get a bid uh, because people start to feel comfortable. They feel a little more liquid. They want to put risk on, uh, but they're not ready to go, okay, the economy's booming. Copper, let's party. Um, In that context, could gold have a moment? Could there be a trade there in 23 if the Fed takes its foot off the brake and people start to calm down, relax, and say, okay, the next time the Fed moves – it's potentially down uh, in terms of the, the risk-free rate, sure. But I don't think generalists are going to go near it. I think that, unfortunately, um, you've had an entire millennial and Gen Z generation that Bitcoin and crypto was their, their pet rock digital version. And those folks are going to go back and say, I'm waiting for the next crypto bull market to yield from whatever. It's going to be the – they're the folks who are left holding the bag the way gold – People owned gold in 1881 and didn't sell. We're left holding the bag, waiting for the next gold move. 
Um, I just don't think you're going to see the capital flow in there uh, from generalists. Um, and I think you've just, uh, Barrick Gold is building Rikadek. That, that, that should tell you where Barrick and Mark Bristow sees the future of that company with their mining expertise. So that's, that's my answer. Uh, it's nice to look at, but all right. I, but there's one, there's one deal I will invest <laughs> in. There was one precious metal deal I would invest in. Um, and I don't know when it happens, but I feel like some point in the next eight years it does. When Philo does a silver stream or a gold stream, I would love to invest in whoever has that because that is probably the most valuable precious metals asset if Argentina behaves itself for the 21st century because that thing will run forever and I'll be and I'll have inflation exposure because it's a stream and the Lundines <laughs> and BHP and whoever the partners of Jose Maria know how to run mines. <laughs> I'll tell you one so scenario, true, right? Trevor, where I could be very wrong and I think it could happen in 2023. I think we could have, you know, is a risk of more geopolitical escalation. You know, Iran, Israel, Taiwan, China, who knows, right? So it's not like we're out of the woods on the geopolitical front. So that's why gold could get a bit. Uh, and that's why I would never short gold, to be honest. <laughs> right. All right. Okay. Gentlemen, thank you so much for your time. Uh, Merry Christmas, Happy Holidays, Happy New Year. I can't wait to have you back on uh, individually in 2023. Uh, we're going to find a lot of avenues to get your expertise on on the n- number of new podcasts that we're launching under Clear C- Clear Commodity Network. I'm still not used to saying it. Uh, Koala, Shrub, my boys, thank you so Happy much. New Year, Trevor. Trevor. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. We're going to wrap up the year here with our second segment of our long-form episode this weekend. Uh, Back in October, actually, I don't know too many people know this, we had the uh, highest-listened podcast uh, of the year who happened to be Doomberg, our famous green chicken friend. And so we're going to wrap up the year with Doomberg. Doomy, welcome back to the podcast. Happy holidays to you, my friend. Hey, Trevor. Merry Christmas. Happy New Year. Um, Happy Hanukkah, whatever it is that you choose to celebrate. And uh, really kind of fun to hear that. You know, it's always great. And um, what a great year it's been, I think, for both of us. And uh, what better way to finish it out than with a conversation with my good friend, Trevor. Yeah, it it has been a really good year. Uh, Let me talk to you. One of the reasons I wanted to have you on here, uh, big picture, we're going to step away from, you know, markets and and that type of thing for just a minute. Uh, You know, I've been in awe of how not only you and Doomberg have launched not only the original Substack and, and the research and the information that you shared, but also transitioning what was a, a generally free service into uh, behind the paywall. And you did it methodically. Uh, you did it strategically and transparently. And it seems to be, it has seemed to be a huge success for you. Uh, you may have noticed, and a lot of people out here have noticed, I'm going through a little bit of a rebrand myself. Now, the 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 business strategy strategy doesn't change, but the brand does. 
And, um, you know, let's talk about this revitalization of financial and investment content. That's really kind of, it feels like it's really been taking the world by storm here with the likes of Substack and people finding their own niche in this realm to put it out there. You know, does it feel like it's getting overly competitive, overly saturated, or do you think there's a lot more room to go here for people of uh, unique uh, tastes and ideas to put out there into the market? Yes, you know, um, great question. And obviously one that we've given a lot of thought to (laughs) considering how much time we've poured into the Doomberg project since launching it in May of last year. Um, All this is driven by COVID um, and the lockdowns. And this basically caused a massive um, distribution and and quantization of of entertainment and education, um, just in time delivery of dopamine hits. Um, Aubrey was a big mega trend, but I think uh, forcing work from home and and so on really just blew that door wide open. I think it's a massively growing trend. We are both swimming with a substantial current. Um, but one thing's really important, and you said, you know, we were methodical and transparent, and we shared everything that we were doing with our audience along the way. Um, the barrier to entry is has never been lower, uh, but the barrier to success is still very high, and you do have to be methodical and disciplined about it. And, and we've laid out our methods and and authentically, you know, um, and it has been wildly successful, be well beyond our wildest imaginations when we started. And and you know, like you, if we if we had pitched this to sort of VC investors at the beginning, like we're going to make a newsletter that uh, doesn't give investment advice, um, speaks about the topics of the day, energy, crypto, finance, macro, currencies, pick your favorite, um, but isn't directly, um, you know, towards trading or giving advice or things like that. Um, and we have these big plans for it. And we would have been you know, laughed out of the room because well, there's no moat, right? The moat is in the execution. So when it gets as crowded as it is today, um, the crisper your execution, the harder you work, the more effort you put into it, the more sweat equity you put into it, uh, and the more authentic you are about it. Um, the more, you know, the barrier to entry is zero and the barrier to success is high. But uh, anybody with a chip and chair gets to play in the poker tournament. Um, somebody's going to win. And so um, that's been our mindset from the beginning. The single most important thing I think we've done in the execution pathway is continuous improvement. Measure, 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 debate, be authentic. You know, wow, this podcast really brought a lot of eyeballs. Uh, wow, that tweet really fell flat. Uh, this piece went viral. This piece didn't do anything. Uh, why? Why? Understand why. Okay. Um, would improving in that regard violate anything about our ethics? No, then improve. Um, look, I mean, we could have just writ- written about crypto from the beginning and blew up our numbers. Um, that's inconsistent with our ethos. Um, but to the extent that you can improve while staying within the bounds of your ethical framework, um, measure everything you can and be relentless about it. And and this is where, you know, we have a very small team, as you know, but um, we are relentless at measuring, um, listening to our audience, listening to feedback, studying the analytics. Our motto is, if you can measure it, it can be optimized. Um, so. you've, you've, you've continued to put out just incredible pieces. In fact, it's it almost feels like you're you're publishing more now behind the paywall than you did before you went behind the paywall. Uh, and so it's, I have to admit, sometimes it's hard for me to keep up. Uh, but there's a there's been a couple of themes that you've been writing about in you know in this first segment with Koala and Shrub, we talked a lot about the signs of a cycle coming to an end, 
And I think that's applicable here in this conversation with you because there's things that I know you're watching carefully and have written about to where, listen, we've seen the contagion in crypto. When we've actually seen regulators doing something uh, with some, I guess, what lack of a better word, paid pumpers or just generally pumpers uh, online and, and coming, bringing down the hammer on those. And so I just keep on watching this and I'm like, is the, we continue to see signs that the cycle is coming to an end. And, you know, we can go into the nitty gritty about specific news items that you've written about, but I, I kind of want to curious about how the big picture here, what you're seeing, what, how you, how are you watching the world right now with these, you know, micro doses of, of headlines? Sure. So before I do that, I just want a quick comment on the first part of what you said. Um, we are publishing more and we are trying to publish at a higher quality because people are paying us. Yeah. Um, and it's a whole different follow, follow acts when you go from a free newsletter where you can experiment um, to where people are actually giving you their hard earned dollars. We have a, we have a significant appreciation for each of our subscribers and we have increased the cadence and the quality of our publication, the consistency of it once we went behind the paywall, because it's a whole different deal when you're a business than where you're just a free block. So um, with that aside, I, I did want to point that out. Um, to your question, um, one of the hardest things to do in the middle of a mania is to stay true to your ethics. Um, we never got into the crypto phase. I'm a no-coiner. I don't even know how. Um, we would never give investment advice or do a pump and dump. Um, even if everyone in the world is doing it and getting away with it and it looks like the regulators are asleep at the switch and um, you're just leaving free money on the table, it's just not something we could ever do. And if you can keep your, your, your ethics about you, um, the cycle eventually has to turn. Like these, none of these cons that are being exposed are unique in, in the way in which they were implemented. There's only so many types of fraud. Um, they might be interesting and unique in, in their scale, but at its core, theft is theft. Lying is lying. You know, um, raising money on false pretenses is fraud. Um, doing a pump and dump through your social media campaign without revealing that you're being paid to do it um, is a fraud. We wrote a piece very early on in Doomberg, you know, about that tout, mm -hmm. where we were amazed. And this was at the peak of the mania, the Bitcoin at 60,000 and NFTs and, you know, Bored Ape Club and pick your favorite signs of a, of a mania. We wrote a piece called About That Tout where we warned social media influencers that uh, there are laws against this. And just because the police aren't looking now, there's a fine line between instant and permanent. And your Instagram post or your tweet is permanent. And the SEC will eventually catch up to you if they want to. And who wants to be in that position? And so when we see the SEC um, drop the hammer on all of these pump and dump uh, accounts on Twitter, and we see them, you see them. I mean, they tweet stuff that I would never imagine tweeting. Um, I would rather be poor <laughs> than to be a criminal. And... Um, you know, if we try hard to play by the rules and, and why we specifically say nothing is an investment advice and we rarely write about specific stocks and when we do, we disclose our positions and like we try to play by the rules, um, certainly the spirit and the letter. And um, what we saw in a post-COVID market melt up with, you know, Dave Portnoy and throwing darts and, you know, the whole spec boom and all that stuff, um, it was clear, clear signs of a mania. And uh, we had been through manias. I'm old enough to remember when, you know, I was in grad school and my friend was making a million dollars trading dot-com stocks. Hmm. I never got caught up in that because I just thought to myself, um, 
what value am I truly creating by doing that? This is a mania. And, um, and the same thing happened here. Like this, this was a complete and total mania of historic proportions. And many, many people sold out. You know, we wrote a piece, um, Work of My Life piece, where we thanked our subscribers recently for the success that we've been able to have um, about how much is enough. You know, like Tom Brady. Yeah. I mean, the greatest quarterback of all time. You know, multiple Super Bowl winners, seven-time Super Bowl winner, I think three NFL MVPs. And him and Giselle Bunchen had something like $600 million in net worth. Like, isn't that enough? Like, do you need to put your name, brand, and likeness behind a transparent fraud like Sam Bankman-Fried, who we had written about, you know, in the earliest days? Um, like, how, how much is enough? Um, and for, for many people, the pursuit of more is the disease. There is never enough. Um, and if you can't actually achieve enough, What's the point? Like the point is to have enough to be happy. Like we're thrilled. Um, and the reason why we could have a higher publication cadence is because we've put our consulting business on runoff and focused more of our time and effort on Doomberg because people are paying us to write these articles. Yeah. Um, we have more than enough doing only what we love, which is the definition of rich. Um, and so we don't need more. We're not going to sell our email list. We're not going to take you know, ads and sponsors. Um, we're not going to write a book. We're not going to try to do anything more than just write great articles delight our ideal clients and um and have a great time doing it uh if if you haven't already read it i think i think you're talking about the title of strange victory that was published a couple of weeks ago here Dimmer. correct yeah i mean you you said listen there's a lot of opportunities out there are we going to do any of this absolutely not so uh you know kudos for sticking to your values i do want to ask you you know philosophically speaking uh we've seen the bubble pop but we still a lot of people are not ready to let it go um, I guess curious, how do you look at, have you relearned or learned anything new about human behavior watching some of these stories play out in 2022? And what's been something that maybe, you know, do you have any like anecdotal ideas of what you've seen in the last year that maybe caught you off guard or maybe you had forgotten and had to relearn? So... I would say the single greatest lesson is there is no technology development that will change human behavior in the financial markets. Dot-com, crypto. Like, they're 20 years apart. It's never different this time. And what is amazing to me is how many people get caught up in it um, that it actually isn't different this time. It's the exact same human forces at play. Now, I will say... Um, one of the unfortunate things about achieving a, a large social media following and some semblance of success um, is no matter how authentic you are about it or, or how humble you try to be about it or how thrilled you are to have achieved it, um, there are some high-profile people for whom your success is a mirror to their own inadequacies, and they will um, strike out at you uh, on social media in, in dangerously unfair ways and, and um, with a high degree of vitriol. And one of the things that we've had to learn um, the hard way is that some of them were, we thought were our friends, you know. Um, uh, and so you just have to have a thick skin if you're going to be in the public eye like, like you are and, and like we are. And um, there's no amount of goodwill you can give to some number of people that won't cause them to turn on you if you have success that they somehow feel that you don't deserve. And that's been a sad part of this journey, um, one that we've dealt with. Um, but, but really sort of opened our eyes that um, 
you know, you find out who your friends are uh, in all scenarios. Um, sometimes you find out who your friends are when things are going poorly, which is a great way to find out who your friends are. And sometimes you find out who your friends are when things are going well. And, um, and you can count on us as being un- unabashedly enthusiastic about all the work that you're doing. And if you become you know, the, the world's greatest podcast network, we would be the first to um, share a drink with each other at a bar and, and in celebration of your work. We wouldn't view your success as some measure of our own inadequacy, but unfortunately for, for some people that is true. And, and those are the sort of both sides of the coin that we sort of learned in 2022 through this crazy journey. I would like to look at look ahead in 2023 with you. Uh, you know, there's been a lot of volatility. Obviously, the stories and the headlines aren't going to stop here. Uh, and despite the holidays and the new year being a time of, you know, hope and optimism, uh, listen, we lived this last year and there was hope and optimism and then January hit and, and things really changed. And we saw the world change every day for 2022. Uh, the world is changing fast. Looking ahead, what are you going to be paying attention to? We have obviously the geo geopolitical tensions uh, continue to become prevalent. Uh, energy is continues to be tight. Uh, but this, you know, I, I, you know, is there, do you expect to see more positive breakthroughs of signs that, listen, because of this tightness in energy, we need to do things about it because the world is deglobalizing? You know, maybe let's maybe maybe that is me being a little bit more optimistic about 2023. But I think we have to. Right. What what is something you'd be you know highly curious to see for next year? Where is the where's positive? Where are positive trends? So we just did a talk for our pro tier on uh, 2023 predictions. And and I'll share some of that with you now. Some of the milestones that we're looking for for either putting in a bottom, which in many people would think is a positive um, or pivot. Um, obviously, how Europe does this winter. Um, and how the weather unfolds in the next few six to eight weeks is going to be critically important. Um, the temperature on the conflict between the U.S. and China vis-a-vis Taiwan, obviously another very big one. Um, when Tether uh, implodes, because it has to eventually, we believe, you know, Tether the stablecoin, um, we don't think the bottom will be in in the crypto world uh, or in the um, high beta, sort of high growth um, speculative stock market uh, until Tether is resolved. That's another milestone. Um, China's reopening, which seems real and full throttled, uh, you know, with our own channel checks with our former colleagues in Shanghai and Beijing. Um, it's like a total 180 bit flip. And um, even the propaganda has totally you know, done a complete about face. And the, the, the medical apps and the, and the codes have all been re- you know, deleted from people's phones. That's not really plugged into people's models, I don't think. Um, and then ultimately the resolution to the war in Ukraine, I think, uh, would be another uh, turning point that we would be looking for. Uh, and then the last one is uh, we're keeping a very keen eye on U.S. oil production and whether that turns over, um, you know, if, if in fact that all the easy wells have been completed and, and the capital isn't there for, you know, a renewed investment in, in drilling um, and whether the U.S. can maintain its 12 million barrels a day oil production or not. Um, and, and then sort of on the downside wildcard is Saudi, Saudi Arabia-Iran um, relations, you know. We, we had a real uh, a great presentation a couple of days ago with our pro-tier members, and, and those were sort of the highlights that we looked at. And, 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 you know, it's one thing to predict, but it's actually more important to sort of identify the milestones that will resolve the prediction so that at least you know what you're looking for and you can act quickly as the news unfolds. I think the last time you and I chatted, we talked about the Strategic Petroleum Reserve and that getting dwindled down uh, by President Biden. Where, where do we stand with that? What, has any idea of getting at least attempts to refilling some of that lately? Yeah, so the way in which 
it could be refilled. Some of some of the quote releases were in the form of loans, uh, physical loans of oil that need to be paid back mm. by the people who receive them um, over a certain time period. I think it's like maybe 50 million barrels um, uh, were of that form. But um, the other part that we've written about that most people don't quite understand, or it's not obvious, is that um, the Strategic Petroleum Reserve has long been used as a piggy bank to make current um, bills in Congress look less detrimental to the deficit than they otherwise would, because what they do is they mandate future sales of oil from the reserves as part of the law, um, and then they get to count that revenue to offset the spending today. And, and since the Congressional Budget Office has an undiscounted 10-year view of the flows, um, mandating a sale 10 years from now is a great way to spend more money today and pretend like your bill is deficit neutral. And there's actually an enormous amount of oil that is mandated to be sold in the coming years. Um, almost, you know, I would say a majority of the remaining oil in the SPR today uh, is mandated through prior congressional bills mm. to be sold in the coming three to five years. And so it's not just the president's, you know, unprecedented 180 million barrels over six months, basically a million barrels a day, uh, draining of the reserves. Um, we also have this overhang of um, credit card bills coming due, so to speak, uh, in the physical market. Uh, and so um, ultimately, we don't think the reserve will get refilled because no politician ever wants oil, oil prices to be higher. And the progressives view um, the refilling of the SPR as a, as a handout to the oil industry, so they find it unacceptable. And the proof of that is when oil went negative, um, Donald Trump um, ordered the Secretary of Energy to refill to top off the SPR, and uh, that effort died in the Senate, and Chuck Schumer bragged about it um, in a press release. So if you couldn't refill oil when oil had just been negative, uh, good luck refilling oil up here. Um, you, know, you couldn't refill the SPR when oil was negative. Good luck filling the SPR up here. Um, we think it's never going to be refilled, and so the U.S. will just have to accept a higher risk. You know, The purpose of the SPR was to ensure predominantly, that the military had ready access to oil in case of an emergency. Mm -hmm. We seem to be on an on a irreversible trend to taking away that insurance policy, and we'll have to live with the risks uh, accordingly. Any thoughts on mineral, hard rock mineral mining and the use for new industry, a new industrial age, the getting new mines permitted in, let's just say, North America, not just the United States? Uh, we would be very bearish that. Um, there's no signs that uh, anywhere near enough pain has been felt um, where the progressive leaders who have impeded the development of the necessary minerals uh, that we need to drive a, a reasonable economy. There's no sign that they've um, uh, experienced enough pain, let alone understand the causes of that pain um, to reverse course. Um, the, the, the bipolar nature of, of the electorate, you know, the, or so the, the sort of hyperpolar nature of, of the electorate is probably a better way to say it. Um, indicates that there's very low probability of significant political reform anytime soon. Um, it's really a propaganda war, not a science war, and um, we're losing that propaganda war. We're being routed in that propaganda war. Uh, war. And so, um, yeah, I'd be pretty bearish North America. And then in the economies where we sort of outsourced um, mining nimbyism, um, we are seeing political upheaval as as predicted. And so... You know, just take a look at what's going on in Peru, which I'm sure you've covered. Um, and so, yeah, we'd be um, bearish new mines in North America. We wrote a piece about this lithium, hard rock lithium deposit that was discovered in Maine. And uh, Maine has a, basically a moratorium on all new mines mm -hmm. while mandating uh, electric vehicle <laughs> penetration 
in the personal transportation sector. Like it, these two things just don't add up. Um, square peg, round hole. But uh, it is what it is. Um, they believe uh, in their policies, and and we see very little possibility for the types of political change that would make a meaningful difference uh, in the sort of Monte Carlo simulation of where we go from here on a forward basis. Doom, let me push back just a little bit, and and I'm, I want to ask you because there was the news months ago that I, I don't remember the total amount of money that was being uh, attributed to a few. Uh, Mining projects, earlier mining projects that were not are not permitted, obviously, earlier stage, that would provide materials to new energy supply chains. Now, it, it was is very few. Obviously, there wasn't a tremendous amount of money, but it was just like a little bit of a door opening, just a little bit. Now, I know there's a long way to go there, but did that have? Any sort of like, okay, maybe they are starting to see the light here. I mean, even though there's a long way to go, didn't they have a little bit of a you know a little bit of positivity behind this story? I mean, you're asking the wrong guy. <laughs> no. no, I mean, I, I would say um, if if the effectiveness of the environmental movement uh, in um, in stopping the development of new mines in Na- in North America was a security, I'd belong it. <laughs> I mean, I'd buy calls. Um, I, I would be deeply long that security. Um, they have the lawyers. They know how to be a nuisance. Um, you might see a headline that looks like it's positive, but then three three months later, there's a lawsuit, and, and they find they, they they court shop and find some judge that um, has a history of ruling against um, you know permits. And they, yeah, I, I, I'd be just look at what's happening with the um, Freeport LNG export terminal restart after that uh, explosion they had. I mean, here we are in December, and um, and another new set of permit requirements landed on the company last week. That thing's not going to be exporting for months. Mm. Um, you know, as we, we're putting out a piece um, later today called A Time for Choosing about fusion, and um, really this is about politics. It's not about science. It's not about uh, bureaucracy. It's about politics. And um, and I would be long the effectiveness of the environmental radicalist movement because they have a multi-decade track record of being effective. You mm. know, so As much as I might begrudge it, or bemoan it. Um, I'm a realist, um, so no. I mean, my my specific answer to your question is, um, I would be bearish on the um, acceptability of new mining developments, even for green metals or metals that are necessary for um, catalyzing the so-called energy transition. Um, that's a deep uphill battle. They have um, countless tactics to slow you down, to drag it out, to make it more expensive. Uh, to make it less attractive for investment. And they will pull every single one of those out of their hat um, right up to the bitter end. Uh, that fusion story was very interesting. Uh, obviously, it was being portrayed as obviously positive. Uh, but, you know, you and I being a realist, obviously, we know there's a long way to go with that technology. Uh, you know, I don't want to get in the nitty gritty here. Uh, Doomber, because I think actually the conversation would be better served with you and myself and Justin Hewn and the new uh, Uranium Energy podcast we'll sure. be launching in January. Because so let's table that for a few weeks, but let's just give a sense. You know, what is what what is real with this fusion breakthrough? What do you want people to know? Uh, yeah, the, the sort of couple sentence summary is: uh, we're all for basic research. Fusion is interesting. We don't need it. It solves fake problems. Fission is here. Fission works. We have decades of experience. The arguments against fission are made up, concocted by radical environmentalists who are anti-human. 
um, who do not want to see cheap and plentiful energy proliferate across the world. And so fusion will be used uh, as an argument against fission right up until the time fusion is commercially viable, at which point the environmentalists will oppose it for made-up reasons, just like they oppose fission. And so the hype cycle of fusion um, bothers us because um, in order to make fusion look great, by definition, they have to um, embellish the made-up problems uh, with fission. And so you'll hear all kinds of stories about how um, no risk of meltdown and no radioactive waste, as though those are significant and meaningful problems to fission today. They aren't. And so fusion will be a tool that is used by the radical environmentalists to make sure we get neither. And we should focus our energy on proliferating fission today um, and, um, and not worrying about solving fake problems that don't exist because you actually can't. They'll just concoct new ones. That's a sort of very quick summary, which I'm happy to expand upon in your new podcast format. Uh, but that's basically the summary of the piece we're putting out today. Uh, a time for choosing. I can't wait to read it, and I cannot wait to dive into this topic with you and Justin later uh, next month. Uh, Doomberg, thanks so much for taking the time out. I'm so happy we could uh, not only wrap up the episode, but literally wrap up the year with you. Uh, you have, you, you. Not only have you been just a a great person to come on the podcast and, and give our listeners a lot of knowledge. I, I want to say you've been uh, great support. And I appreciate uh, the stewardship and, and everything and running ideas by you in the background and uh, you being honest with me when things are good and things maybe not so good. So I appreciate you. I couldn't, couldn't be happier to be part of it. And congratulations on your rebrand. And if there's anything we can do to help, you know, Team Duberg stands uh, 100% behind you and wishing you and your family and your friends an unbelievable and happy and prosperous um, holiday season and new year, Trevor. Um, Godspeed. Yeah, I, I wish I knew what a holiday decorated hen house looked like. <laughs> All right. All right, everybody. We're going to take a real quick break and then one more quick segment here. Stay tuned. Well, as they say in show business or in financial media, that's a wrap. 2022, uh, you were nuts. You were insane. Every day was something special. It seemed like no sh- no shortage of topics to talk about. Uh, despite the volatility in the markets, we published a ton of content, talked to a lot of people, and then hopefully opened up a lot of eyes. Uh, thank you so much to everybody out there who listened uh, you know, day after day, week after week. I couldn't do any of this without you. Uh, more to come, obviously, in 2023. Clear Commodity Network or ClearCom is a go. And we also have the three new podcasts on top of Mining Stock Daily The Power Current with Chris Berry, The Oil Ground Up with Tony Greer, and also Going Nuclear with Justin Hewn and myself. A couple quick thank yous. I want to thank uh, Paul Harris for sticking with me this year and helping out when he can. I want to thank Carla Peters for all the uh, marketing and uh, <laughs> and rebranding launch that she helped in the background. She was a tremendous help. Uh, you know, all the organizations and people we partnered with throughout the year. Thank you so much for your continued support. Um, I can't wait to get back. <laughs> I know it's crazy. I can't wait to get back here uh, in early January and start launching more content to see how the metals and mining and now oil, gas, battery metals, and uranium, how they all, uh, make it through the year. Thank you so much. So as you know, all the listeners out there for the last four years, we have a tradition here. 
We close out the holiday season. We close out Mining Stock Daily with Burr Lives and one of our favorite songs about our favorite metals. Merry Christmas. Happy Holidays. Happy New Year. We'll talk to you again in January. Be well. How do you measure its worth Just by the pleasure it gives here on Silver and gold, silver and gold Means so much more when I see Silver and gold decorations On every Christmas tree The information presented should not be considered investment advice. Mining Stock Daily and its affiliates are not responsible for any loss arising from any investment decision in connection with the material presented herein. Please do your own research or speak with a licensed financial representative before making any investment decisions.